Hi, I'm Sam Pador, and I'd like to welcome David Bennett Cohen. David's a keyboardist and guitarist who was a member of Country Joe and the Fish. So welcome, David. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good so far. Well, let's start this off with, I guess, one of the, the songs that always puts a smile on my face, and it, it never fails to actually, is the I Feel Like I'm Fixing to Die rag. So could you tell me a little bit about like how the writing and recording process of that song went about? Uh, okay, Country Joe wrote that song probably in 1965, and uh, Country Joe and the Fish was originally a jug band. And uh, so they were playing it as as a jug band. And that was the song that they, uh, that was a signature song, of course, for Country Joe and the Fish. And uh, when we signed with Vanguard, uh, Vanguard did not want to put that put it on the first album. They thought it was too controversial. They thought it was too controversial for the first record, so they put it on the second one. I don't understand the logic behind that, but that was... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, so <clears throat> during the recording of the second album, we were, we were trying to figure out what to do with the song. And we spent hours trying to figure out an arrangement for it because it was originally, you know, a jug band. We used to do it, but uh, it was never really s solidified into anything. So we took a break and I sat down. During the break, I sat down at the piano and I started playing it as a ragtime thing. Uh, and and the uh, producer, Sam Charters, that's it. So that's how we recorded it. And then, of course, there was a uh, uh, <clears throat> there was this uh, electric calliope uh, sitting around the studio. So, of course, we had to use it. So that's uh, that's the calliope sound. But originally it was it was like like ragtime. Oh, cool. Yeah, well, that song really has a statement to it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it sure does. Know the peace can only be won when you blow them all to kingdom come. Oh, yeah. It it really, it's got some cool lyrics in there. Like, you you originally hear it, and it's like, da-da-da-da-da-da, and then, but it's like, it's really, it's really serious, like, in between all of that fun. Yeah, it's the best kind of satire. Yeah, yeah. Well, being a part of the San Francisco scene, did you see like a lot of protest with with music and that whole movement? Well, there was uh, during the hippie movement in, in the in the in the late '60s. I got to San Francisco, uh, the Bay Area, around 1965, and uh, uh, I from New York, and the uh, uh, the scene was already percolating out there, and various uh, bands were forming and breaking up and forming and breaking up. And it was a very organic kind of scene, and and everybody was playing with everybody else, and we were everybody was friends. It was like a, it was like a real community, a real like a, almost like an extended family. There were some bands that came up as complete bands. The Grateful Dead, when they came up to the Bay Area, they were a band, but. Uh, for the most part, other you know bands would sort of uh, get together. People would play together and say, "Oh, let's start a band," you know, and it would work out or it wouldn't work out. But like I said, we were all friends and we all knew each other and we uh, all liked each other. We all played together. I used to go hang out at the Charlatans' house in the city or the Grateful Dead house, and uh, they had a. Uh, then they moved to. Uh, up to Nevada, California, and they had a big ranch and go up there and hang out with it. It was it was just a, it was a wonderful scene. Yeah. So you must have played on like so many great little jams. Yeah, a few. Yeah, <laughs> there were some of them. There was a, a few jams. Yeah. Any great memorable ones? Uh, well, <clears throat> I remember one time <clears throat> um, Vox 
uh, came to the Avalon Ballroom and they had this, uh, they had these Vox Super Beatles and they were these huge amplifiers. And uh, out front, there was what they called the Voxmobile. It was a car and the sides were guitars. The the trunk was, or it was a a keyboard and it it was a real car. It drove, but it was uh, the Voxmobile. And uh, so the, the salesman came up and he said, these, they used to advertise these, these amplifiers as if you put 10 in a row and put them on 10, they were lethal. They could kill you. That's how they advertised it. <laughs> so uh, they swore that these amplifiers were impervious to being blown up. Nobody, you know, no matter how loud you play, you couldn't blow it up. Well, all the guitar players uh, in the Bay Area, they took that as a challenge. So it was, uh, I remember it was Jerry Garcia and Yorma and uh, and Steve Miller and uh, John Cipollina, Barry Melton and uh, Gary Duncan, just the whole, the whole crew of guitar players. They started playing and one by one, the amplifiers blew up. Yeah, well, <laughs> they're the people who would do it, right? That group. Yeah, yeah some incredible well, guitar players there. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was quite the scene. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, in terms of other jam, the, the last gig that Country Joe and the Fish played was actually a jam session. We played, it was uh, at the, when I decided to leave the band in 19, at the end of 1968, Bill Graham came up to me and he said, no, you're not leaving before we do a concert. So we did this farewell concert. I think it was January 20th. And I was already kind of out of the band. Chicken uh, was leaving. Bruce had left already. And so it was, uh, we didn't really have a bass player. So uh, uh, we used Jack Cassidy. He was because Jefferson Airplane had taken a a, a break because they were having legal problems uh, with their former manager, Matthew Cates, uh, who owned the name Jefferson Airplane. So that's why they changed it to Jefferson Starship. Uh, and so, um, <clears throat> it was, uh, it was, uh, that was an interesting gig because the opening act was Taj Mahal and the second act was Led Zeppelin. They opened for us. Wow. And the headliner, we were country doing the fish, but it was, it was like a huge jam session and it's record. It got recorded on some album, but <clears throat> it was, uh, okay. Besides Jack, it was Yorma, Jerry Garcia was there. Steve Miller was there. Um, uh, Mickey Hart played, uh, Chicken played. Uh, it was, uh, it was just, it was a real scene. And, uh, we, I remember we did, we did a, a flying high. We used to jam that. We did it for maybe half an hour. Wow. <laughs> it, was, it was, it was really something. Yeah. I, I think I was just looking. I think I remember listening to, to that gig. There, that's got a, I mean, there's so many people playing on that. That must have just been so fun. All, all of those different sounds. Yep. It was, uh, it was quite a scene. Oh, yeah. Well, you also played Monterey Pop, didn't you? I did play Monterey Pop. And I still I still think that Monterey Pop was the best gig I ever played. So what was your experience like at Monterey? Oh, it was... Uh, <laughs> you have to understand that <clears throat> this was a gathering of the tribes. Um, it was three days... <clears throat> uh, it, was, it was actually the first major rock concert uh, um, that was publicized. Uh, and so... Uh, it was uh, all the bands from the Bay Area. Uh, that's you know, Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Charlatans, uh, <clears throat> um, just uh, you know, Quicksilver, uh, Butterfield Band, uh, 
uh, it was uh, it was the first gig of uh, the electric flag, and uh, it was it was just fabulous. All the, and then all the L.A. bands were there: Mamas and the Papas, the Association, uh, <clears throat> a few others, and uh, then there was some uh, English. There were, of course, Jimi Hendrix was there, and and uh, it was it was an international festival. It was designed by musicians for musicians of course you know audience without the audience we can't we can't do anything but uh but and the audience had a wonderful wonderful time but uh backstage was incredible and it was it was there were closed circuit tvs this is 1967 so it was it was pretty pretty wild uh and uh it was just it was just a fabulous fabulous uh gathering uh you know gathering the people and besides that the grounds of the uh, of the of the festival uh the uh, fairgrounds there they were devoted to a lot of um, hippie various booths and stuff that people painting faces and and doing all kinds of designs and it was it was uh and everybody was smiling everybody was happy and of course uh drugs were a big part of it lsd was part of it so the the whole the whole uh, festival was about three feet off the ground uh it was uh, it was really it was really wonderful and uh owsley i don't know if you know who owsley was mm -hmm. He was, uh, uh, well, just a, a very complicated, very complex person. Uh, I consider him a good friend. Um, but he uh, he had his latest, uh, latest um, uh, product. And he was giving it, you know, giving it to all the musicians and stuff. And I personally saw Jimi Hendrix go up to him like three times <clears throat> within like half an hour, half an hour. And say, hey man, I can't get high. And Owsley would, he had this, he would carry around this um uh pill case, a silver pill case, and with his pills in it. And he'd open it up and Jimmy would take take two or three and pop them. And half an hour later, hey man, I can't get uh, he was so high that he didn't know he was high. Wow. And you can see in his performance. I mean, when he when he destroyed the guitar, it was spontaneous. It wasn't a shtick, not like the who. The who everything the who did when they destroyed their instruments it was it was a thing you know it was part of their act uh and it wasn't you know maybe it may have been spontaneous at one point but it was no longer spontaneous but with jimmy it was it was spontaneous he just uh you know he was just there yeah, well, after after monterey pop uh country joe and the fish and Jimi hendrix experience toured together for about three or four weeks up and down the coast and that's where that's why i became friendly with him wow that that must have been incredible getting to know the guy like for those few weeks like in just gosh three years before he died too yeah it was uh, it was amazing i remember going into the in, i used to go into the i used to take my guitar i had this beautiful guitar and I used to go into the other dressing room and, you know, play guitar with uh, whoever was whoever was there, you know. And so I would go in there. And, and one time I walked in, Jimmy took a look at the guitar. He says, let me see it. And he takes it and he turns it upside down and backwards. And he starts playing the most incredible licks I ever heard. And I said, I said, how did you do that? And he said, well, when he was a kid, right, he, you know, if he if he went to a party, if he didn't bring his own guitar, he couldn't play it because it wasn't, you know, wasn't lefty. So he learned how to play upside 
upside down and backwards. Wow. That's crazy. I can't imagine doing that. Like, I think you have to, you got to bend your fingers in that weird way. (laughs) Yeah. So Jimmy was, uh, Jimmy was great. Well, what did you think when you saw him like burning his guitar at Monterey? (laughs) (laughs) What can you think? I mean, it was, uh, I, I personally, I was never into, into breaking guitars. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, breaking instruments uh i uh, i don't uh, i i it, it it didn't it didn't appeal to me and i kind of objected to it Ravi shankar also made a comment about it you know how he didn't it was it wasn't right mm-hmm. yeah well well that guy gosh what a player yeah yeah oh, that, shankar? yeah yeah <laughs> i don't think you need to say any more than that it's just wow i mean you saw him live didn't you he was at monterey and all that stuff yeah yeah same Sunday morning, it was like uh, everybody was uh, kind of hungover, and it was just perfect. It yeah. was just perfect, you know, that raga that he played, that morning raga. Of yeah. course, it was abbreviated because those things go on for hours and hours. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. How? L- let me ask you here. How did you get into Country Joe and the Fish? I know we've been talking about how you were like played with them, but how do how do you get to be with them as a band? All right. This is uh, how much time you got. I was part of the New York uh, folky scene in the late fifties and early sixties. That was around Washington Square Park. That's with uh, John Sebastian and Dan, Danny Kalb and and uh, you know all, all the you know so many. Uh, that was my background. I was uh, I went to a camp in 1956. I was the the summer that I turned 14, and that's where I uh, it was. The camp was called Lincoln Farm War Camp. It was run by a bunch of uh, left wing. Um, people <laughs> and uh, it was uh, it was a wonderful experience i met uh some friends that i lasted my whole life or their whole life uh paul crestapino uh one of my uh idols he was a, a dear friend he passed away recently um i saw pete seeger uh and i just fell in love with folk music and so i was uh i went started going to washington square park and uh, i remember the first time i walked into washington square park carrying my guitar kid comes up to me and says oh what he, he was had a guitar too he says what kind of guitar you got oh i said i got a gibson oh let me so we took out came the guitars and and we became friends and then we he would take me to various groups uh, I don't know. It, there were like uh, Washington Square Park around the, around the fountain. There were like various groups. A group here playing bluegrass. A group here playing folk music. A group here playing uh, blues. You know, just and I, you'd go, you go up to one group, and somebody was, oh, take it, David. You know, and I, I'd have to, you know, I, I, that's how I learned. I learned so much about uh, about playing. You know, improvising and and jumping in like that. And uh, we we used to we used to practice things like tuning. We used to practice changing strings. How fast can you change the strings? And so it's uh, you know when I got to the Bay Area, nobody was really in tune, and it drove me. It made me a little crazy. Um, there were no, no, that's not true. That nobody was in tune. But uh, a lot of people had those, <clears throat> you know, those uh, tremolo bars, and they invariably would throw the guitar out of tune. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well. <clears throat> Those two music scenes, like the New York folk scene and San Francisco, like hippie and like jam band, that whole scene, it's that that must have been such a like a a wow, like this is totally different when you got there. Yep, yep. The Bay Area was uh, was 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 really percolating, and so okay, so um, when I was I I took 
piano lessons when I was seven and I hated it. Uh, <clears throat> I took piano lessons for about maybe five, six, seven years. And uh, when I was about 13, I discovered the guitar and the guitar was like a love affair for me. Um, I would get home from school around 3.30, go to my room, play my guitar for six hours, do 15 minutes of homework. <laughs> and that was high school. <clears throat> so, uh, so I, you know, that's where I really learned how to play. Uh, but, you know, I, I wanted to learn Boogie Woogie on the piano but nobody was teaching it nobody was teaching it so I learned a few things here and there uh, but I wasn't serious about it when I got to the Bay Area there was a club in Berkeley called the Jabberwock and that was our that was our hangout uh, and uh, it was old beat up piano in the corner and every now and then I'd sit down at the piano and I'd play uh, St. Louis Blues or some a little bit of Boogie Woogie it had a very limited repertoire and I wasn't serious about it. But Barry Melton, who was who and he and I were friends, we were playing, we we were you know starting a band together, right? <laughs> Uh, but uh, he liked the way I played. He actually really liked the way I played the piano. So Country Joe decided after after Highway 61 came out, <clears throat> Country Joe decided that he wanted to go electric and he needed to have an organ in the band. So Barry said, well, David could play organ. Of course, I never played organ in my life. And the organ, only organs I ever saw were the ones in the church and the ones in the theater. And they were so intimidating with multiple keyboards and foot pedals and stops. And it was... I, I I just I didn't want to have anything to do with that. I, it was too it was it scared me. But uh, <clears throat> I wanted the gig, so I said, "Okay, I'll do it." And uh, for I, I auditioned. Well, I, I I auditioned on guitar, and they liked the way I played the guitar, so they hired me right away. And then they got this organ. They got a single keyboard for Fiza. It was just it was just a single keyboard of that this big. Right. I looked at it and I said, well, I could probably play that. And so I started I started stealing my guitar licks and putting them on the organ. Wow. And I get these reviews. What a unique style. I did, had no idea what I was doing. Uh, we, we That's the thing about the that's the thing about the music that we were creating at that time. We were making it up as we went along. Who ever heard of playing drums with folk music? You know, it, <clears throat> but that's what happened. You know, that's why, you know, Quicksilver Messenger Service. They were, you know, the Grateful Dead. They were all, they were all folk musicians, and they, you know, well, not all of them. John Cipollina <laughs> never played, never played an acoustic guitar. <laughs> his, I don't think, but he was a rocker. Mm -hmm. But you know, that's what happened. We had, um, we had uh, folkies and rockers and and <clears throat> people who, from various musical backgrounds all coming together and creating this thing, and so we were all making it up as we went along, mm -hmm. and that was very, very exciting time. Yeah, I, I mean, you can just hear it from the music alone. Like, you can tell something's going on there, that everyone's everyone's figuring it out together. Everyone's doing their own thing. It's really great. I mean, it sounds like it, too. Yeah. Well, something I noticed um, when, you, when you've been telling me and from, from my, um, my knowledge about Country Joe and the Fish is that you guys had all these, like, cool nicknames. Like, you had the Fish, the Chicken, Country Joe. You didn't have one, but wh where did these nicknames come from? Well, Country Joe was Country Joe. <clears throat> um, that came from uh, <clears throat> Ed Denson and Country Joe. Ed was our manager before they were they were they, before he was our manager. Country Joe and and, and Ed were friends. They were sitting around uh, uh, Ed's ca cottage trying to figure out a name for the band. And uh, 
Ed picked up uh, Chairman Mao's little red book and opened it up and came to the, came across the quote, the revolutionary is a fish that swims in the sea of the people. Something like that. I may be, I'm paraphrasing, but mm-hmm. that's close to what it says. So he, so Ed said, well, let's call the country Mao and the fish. <clears throat> and they couldn't do that because we didn't recognize Red China at that time. Yeah, yeah. Communist China. So let's call the country Joe after Joe Stalin. Wow. Yeah, so. And it's, so that, wow. That's, uh, that's how country Joe got his name. Chicken. <clears throat> chicken was, uh, the name Chicken was a family name. His father was called Chicken. His brother was called Chicken. He was called Chicken. I don't know why. Uh, huh. Just uh, just what they, <laughs> that was it. So he was Chicken. Uh, for a while, he, he was Chick. People called him Chick. Uh, and still, some some jazz people call him Chick Hirsch. Unfortunately, we, we lost him last year and uh, also Bruce. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's sad. It 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 happens, I guess. Yeah, it's what happens. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I those nicknames are definitely a funny thing, and they kind of show off like what what the band is. Like, I know Canned Heat had nicknames too, and it was like, "This is Canned Heat." Well, your country Joe and the Fish, like it 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 fits. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay, but you know that that was that was pretty much the only only people that had nicknames. Barry was Barry. So- and, Barry, now he's Barry the fish. <clears throat> so he wasn't always uh, the fish that just came later. Yeah, that came later. The the uh, country Joe was country Joe, and the band was the fish. And oh. so uh, and so uh, there was a uh, when <clears throat> and the band was very volatile, and country Joe was. Uh, occasionally left the band really? so one time one time uh when that happened uh um we 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 were the fish we stayed the fish we called ourselves the incredible fish and uh we were on the cover of um san francisco magazine uh, we're, uh as the fish and then uh so well what happened was uh, country joe went off and tried to do a solo career uh but no uh, you know and and then uh and the fish would play. Nobody wanted Country Joe or the fish, right? They wanted Country Joe and the fish. So we 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 came up with a kind of a compromise. We <clears throat> we would open the show, or Joe Joe would open the show, and then we would come out, and then we do a few gig, a few songs together at the end. But that didn't work either. Bill Graham was very upset about that, and so uh, we eventually became Country Joe and the Fish again. Well, why why didn't he stay in the band like throughout that whole time? Why did he have his little moments? Uh, I have to ask Joe. <laughs> <clears throat> He's a very complex, very complicated person. Um, very incredibly talented, incredibly compassionate. He's one of them. He he. He feels everybody's pain. That's why he and Janice got along so well, because she was that way, too. She was, you know, just such a sweet, honest uh, person who, you know, felt everybody's pain. Mm. And, you know, it really, it really hurt her, you know? Yeah. Well, did- that's you know, that's why she could get you know she was so, such an emotional singer. Yeah, well, her, her singing is just like unlike so many others. It's it's something. And did did you ever play with her? Oh, lots of times. Really, that must have been yeah. pretty cool. Janice was a good friend. Uh, <clears throat> Country Joe and Janice were an item for about a minute, uh, maybe a minute and a half. And uh, I remember they they, they just really they really really liked each other they really loved each other actually and uh so but you know it was obvious that they 
couldn't possibly stay together. Right? They were both had their own careers. They were both very independent. And uh, and <clears throat> so uh, Joe told me one time they were sitting in front of her in front of Janice's house on on Oak Street, uh, Lion and Oak, and uh, <clears throat> they were this fight all the time. They're mm-hmm. screaming at each other, right? And the windows of the car are fogged up. People would come by, they look in, they'd tap on the window. Hey, where are you playing next, you know? <laughs> and uh, get out of here, we're, we're fighting, you know? So so uh, Janice, said to, Janice said to Joe, write me a song before we break up. So he wrote the song Janice, and he gave it to the band. He gave it to Big Brother and the Holding Company. It's a waltz. And uh, they really didn't know what to do with it. So we recorded it. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, it, I still perform it. I do it instrumentally. Wow. Yeah. It's it's so interesting how these like musical stories like kind of line up with, well, I mean, it makes sense that they line up with what's going on with the musicians. But I, I always just find it so much more interesting to figure out like the person behind the music too, you know, not just the music. My last question here for you is is Bennett your middle name? My middle name. Is there a reason you you go by the full David Bennett Cohen? Because I've noticed like everywhere that that's you, and I I just think that's cool. I don't I don't see it too often. Okay, here in Queens where I live, David Cohen, we have our own phone book. <laughs> uh, you know, and the one t- the one thing that really really uh, did it to me was I went to. Um, my friend David Blue, also David Cohen, uh, he was playing at the bottom line. So I went to see, so I went there and I, uh, you know, I told him at the at the door, David Cohen. And of course, which one? <laughs> yeah. And so that did it, you know. So at least, you know, I'm the only David Bennett Cohen that I know. I don't think there's another one around. So, you know, it, it's an identity. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I guess there would be a lot of David Cohens out there. Yes. Yeah, we like I said, we got our own phone book here in Queens and in Brooklyn too. Do you ever have like a, a David Cohen like meetup where you're all in the same room? Uh, when I was, uh, I guess about fifteen or sixteen, I was at Washington Square Park. My friend Danny Laufer comes up to me and he says, "Listen, you got to come. You got to meet this guy. He's uh, he, 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 you got you got to meet him. He's at the Folklore Center." So he went over to the Folklore Center and he goes, "David Cohen, meet David Cohen." <laughs> and was, that was David Blue. <clears throat> so <laughs> I said to him, "I'm thinking about changing my name." He says, "What do you want to do that for?" <laughs> and then he changed his name to David Blue. So oh, that's funny. We, we were friends, yeah, but n- not really, not really. Wow, there's lots of. Uh, uh, there's uh there's lots of davids you know i uh, play it i i play i play every monday at uh, a jam session in new york city it's called uh, big ed sullivan's world famous blues jam and it's i've been doing it now for about maybe 14 15 years it's been going on for 25 years 26 years it's the longest running blues jam in new york maybe in the country and it's also the best blues jam I've ever been to. The musicianship is so amazing. <clears throat> so I do that every Monday. And uh, um, one time we had, uh, and Ed, uh, Big Ed Sullivan, he's uh, he runs the jam. He'll put together, you know, people sign up with their instruments, and he'll put together he'll put together a band out of those people, right? And one time we had uh, four Davids and two Bobbies. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, crazy. Right. Wow. That was crazy. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, those jam sessions sound like a lot of fun. And you know what? So does your whole music career. Everything I've heard has just been so interesting. And and yeah, you must have had such a such a great musical journey. And you know what? Thank you, David, so much. Ain't over yet. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But but thank you so much for coming and talking to me here. It's been so great to hear all about your musical story. It's great to see, you know, see young people, you know, loving this music. Well, thank you, David. Thank you, Sam. This is uh, very nice. Nice to meet you. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Sam. Let's stay in touch. Let's do that. All right, bye-bye. Right, bye. I'm Sam Pador, and I hope you enjoyed that interview with David Bennett Cohen the keyboardist and guitarist for Country Joe and the Fish, and he played with many others, including Jimi Hendrix and so many more great musicians. So if you enjoyed that interview, keep listening to My Back Pages on our website, mybackpages.org, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts for so many more great interviews just like this one.